0: Well good morning, it's good to be back with you. I was out uh, last week on the West Coast visiting family, just got back yesterday afternoon and uh, contrary to what it says in the worship guide, my name is not Mike St. Dennis, uh, my name is Stephen Good, I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at All Souls. Uh, Mike was originally scheduled to preach this morning but I got a text from him on Friday afternoon, he said he was in the hospital and uh, I was like, oh, okay. And in Mike's typically understated way, he asked, so when are you going to be back? (laughs) And then he sent me this picture. Yeah, we have a new St. Dennis in the world. Eight pounds, 20 inches, and that a couple weeks early. So yeah, imagine that. Meredith and Brady, uh, Braden is his name, but going to go by Brady. They're doing well. Spoke to Mike for a few minutes. He is on cloud nine. Uh, He's going to be out for the next few weeks, but feel free to, uh, you know, extend your prayers, well wishes. Uh, He and Meredith are going to, you know, he's going to help her get rested and settled and all of that. How great is that? So good. Well, we're going to pick up this morning in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up and join in with me. This comes as kind of a natural break. We're heading into the last bit of the first half of Mark's gospel. And then there is a a hinge in between where Jesus does his uh, teaching on discipleship. But this kind of marks the end of that first part where the disciples are struggling to understand the meaning of who Jesus is. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Interesting question given that like just a few days ago, Jesus was in the same scenario with them and he produced bread miraculously. Jesus asked the same question, How many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Guess the feeding didn't count. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them and got back in the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? and how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would come upon us, that we would see. And here, and that we would do accordingly, placing our trust in you. We ask this in the name of the one who is the bread of life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Have you ever eaten something so good? Maybe in a restaurant. Maybe, you know, grandma's top secret recipe. You have that thing. And it's just it's, it's in your imagination, and you, whenever you start to think about it, whenever some sort of memory hits you or something, it triggers this thought, and you just get lost in this craving, and it's all you can think about, all you want, and it just kind of lingers in your mind for the rest of your life. Anybody like that? All right, now that I've lost you, because you're thinking about lunch for the rest of the, of the day... Um, Stick with me. I'm going to try and make it worth your while. For me, it is the taste of a maple and bacon sidecar donut. They look like this. Mmm. Mmm. There was a shop that opened up about a mile from my house in Costa Mesa a few years ago. I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. I like a donut is a donut, right? Why is there always a line out the door at this place? Until one day, I went in and the smells... The sight of the dough. You could see, the it was like love coming out of their hands into the dough as they were kneading it. I picked out half a dozen for the family, and I got to the register. The young woman behind the counter said, that will be $33, please. And I don't know what my face communicated. But hers was somewhere between, I'm so sorry, and you're a sucker, But I gulped, I gave her my card, I drove home, I set the box on the counter and told my wife, hey, honey, enjoy this once in a lifetime treat that we are about to have. And I hopped in the shower to get ready for work. When I got out about 10 minutes later, she was uh, gone. And so I texted her, hey, did you enjoy your donut? She said, oh, it was so good. I was like, great. Where did you put the box? Uh, And she said, "Uh, what do you mean? I, I left it on the counter. And just as I was reading her text out of the corner of my eye, I saw the box on the ground and my dog Aww. looking up at me, having devoured $28 worth of donuts. And she did not look like she enjoyed them. <laughs> Took me another month to go out and buy one. And all I can say, friends, is that I believe in the kingdom of heaven. Because I have tasted it. I actually had one on Tuesday. And you know how it is, like, sometimes you build something up in your mind, and then you go and you have it, and you're just like, oh, it's not as good as I remember it. This was not that experience. It was so good. But you taste something, the memory hits, then it's all you can think about. That's what it's like to crave something. It's not just food. Uh, Surfers describe this with, like, the perfect wave. My buddy Dave would always, during staff meetings, have his, his sketchbook out. And while he should have been paying attention to what was going on, in staff, he was drawing barrels, he was drawing waves. It was all he could think about. Sometimes you find a passion that is so good, an experience of something so deep, your whole life gets turned around by an encounter a glimpse, a moment of clarity. And all the other noise in your head and in your heart kind of gets filtered out, and you just see that one thing. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it best. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And if you've ever experienced something like that, you know that you can spend the rest of your life chasing after it. You find something so good and beautiful and true, you will do anything to be back in its presence. I mean, that's what it's like to fall in love, right? Well, I think something like that is humming along beneath the surface in Mark chapter eight. In a lot of ways, the story is like deja vu, right? Uh, we've, if you've been around for a while, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you're thinking, wait, didn't we just read this story a couple of weeks ago? Uh, didn't Jesus already feed thousands uh, out in the wilderness? Weren't there baskets left over? Everyone was satisfied? Yes and No. Uh, this is actually the second story in Mark where Jesus does a miraculous feeding. And the two are very similar. They both take place in the desert. They both emphasize Jesus' compassion for the crowds. They, 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 same questions are repeated. The, the prayer, the involvement of the disciples, the words, the, the, the serving of the loaves, they all take place in the same way. The people eat and they're satisfied. The baskets are left over. Jesus even dismisses the crowd and then goes by boat to a trip on the other side of the lake. But for all that, the two stories are very different. And they're different in some key ways. They're different first with a people, and they're different with a posture. Let me see if I can describe that. First, the people. In the first story, Jesus was with his own people. He was with Uh, the nation of Israel. He was with Jews in Galilee, people who shared a religious, uh, an ethnic, a national identity. Mark described them as sheep without a shepherd. They were looking for a Messiah, someone who's going to lead them against the nation, someone who's going to put them back on tap, back into the driver's seat in national affairs on the world stage. But this time, Jesus is in the Decapolis, which is a predominantly Gentile area, so his audience would have been composed almost entirely of people who didn't think like him, who maybe didn't look like him, uh, who had a very different orientation to reality and to world and to God. And I won't go into the details, but in the same way that there were 12 baskets left over uh, for the the feeding in Judea, in in Galilee, uh, representing kind of the the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, well, there are seven baskets left over, and it holds meaning for the Gentile nations. So Jesus is doing something very intentional here. He is saying, my Father's kingdom is not simply for one people group, it is not simply for one time period, one nation, one tribe, one tongue at a time. He is saying, my kingdom is for the world. That is all of Jesus, all of who he is, his, his teaching, his healing, his touch, his power is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. So that's the people. But what about the posture? What's different in how this group of uh, this crowd holds itself in the relationship to Jesus from the other one. well, there are a couple of levels to this in chapter six, uh, when Jesus feeds the the five thousand, people are kind of coming in on jesus they are they are crashing in on him. he is with his disciples ready to go out on a retreat, ready to go out and 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 have some intentional time alone with the Father and Mark uses this language to describe how they have uh, you know What was going on is kind of like this revolutionary groundswell that was there. It was an uncomfortable atmosphere. People see Jesus and they want to use Jesus for their ends. But here in chapter 8, these people have been with Jesus for three days. And the word that Mark uses for how they have received him is the same word that Jesus himself uses in John's gospel to describe the relationship of a vine to branches. It's the word to remain, to abide. These these people have dug in with him. They have made their home with him. They are hanging on every word. They are treating him like he is the source of their life. They are hooked He has awakened this longing that they didn't even know was there and now they cannot pull themselves away. I wonder if you can remember what it was like the first time you heard about Jesus and it was all you could do to be in his presence. The first time you really knew deep down in your bones that Jesus life his his way his death his resurrection it was all true and it was all something that was going to change and shape your life you you tasted the the bread of life you knew that it was good you had this experience of the love of Christ in and around and through his community and it made you want to spend the rest of your life chasing after him and maybe some of you have had that experience maybe some of you haven't had that experience if you haven't had it you are you are more than welcome here But here's the promise of the gospel. And Jesus shows this in both places. When Jesus breaks bread, there is more than enough for everyone. When Jesus lays down his life, when Jesus becomes the broken bread, the living bread broken for the world, there is enough for everyone. He is enough. But then this question pops up again and again. And the question is, is this all you're ever going to want? Is it going to be enough for you? Have you come to the table with this heart posture of openness and trust, ready to receive whatever it is that, that Jesus gives, the good, the bad, the heart-wrenching, the, the heartwarming, the thrilling? Or do you find yourself wondering, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good and all, but really, everything, can he be Everything? Well, if you've asked that question, I think you know what Jesus and his disciples are talking about in the boat. Do you see that I'm enough? Do you see that I am what you're looking for? Do you understand yet? It's one of those questions that pops up again and again in, in Scripture. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, as uh, God is recounting all of the things that he has done for the people of Israel, how he has brought them out of the wilderness, how he has brought them out of the, the land of slavery and brought them into this place where they can bond with God, where they can be free, where they can live life in relationship to God. And as, as they have, they have, he's given them bread in the wilderness, uh, later the psalmist would write, "'Taste and see that the Lord is good.'" they had they'd come to this place where indeed they had tasted the goodness of the Lord and Joshua is getting ready to take them into the promised land and he gets haunted by this question god are we going to want you even after you've given us what we need or are we going to see that you are what we need will you be enough or are we going to forget the taste and I think really that is the question for us, because you and I, we, we, we forget all the time. Turns out there is a different kind of posture in this story as well. There is a hard posture of unbelief. And, and I want to make clear that unbelief is not the same thing as doubt. Uh, doubt is actually kind of a complement to faith. It's a, it's a companion on the journey to faith. Doubt is a search for truth. And, it's, it's that, that, that thing that happens when you are uncertain of whether something is true or whether something is a lie. It's, it's this posture of curiosity. And at its core, doubt is actually a struggle to believe. It's, it's falling toward faith. But what the New Testament describes as unbelief is this, this closed posture, this kind of callous disregard and intentional shutting off of the heart and the mind from the possibility of trust. It's a way of of thinking, of of demanding that God or that others meet you only on your terms. And I got to say, I mean, this heart posture is all over the place. I came across this pair of of articles this week that looked at the results from uh, Ligonier's annual study on the state of theology in uh, America and in Britain. And one of the clearest trends that they found you know, doing this year after year is that the, re- the rejection of Scripture involving any sort of claim on one's life. According to the authors, the authors of the study, they wrote this, This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural values. It's a way of doing away with God. Uh, A God who doesn't conform to uh, our expectations. A God who doesn't conform to our desires. It's a way of choosing one's own God instead of the God that Jesus knows. The the God that Jesus calls Father. And it places one's own emotions or thoughts or desires at the center. Or one's group identity as the thing that is the, the bellwether of whether something is true or not. And when that happens, the heart gets less teachable. It gets less tender. You start making accusations where you would have asked questions. There's an edge in your voice when you talk to others or when you talk about others. That's what it means to have a hardened heart. Well, as if on cue, the Pharisees show up and they are looking for a controversy, the, the word uh, that Mark uses is the, the for when he says they came up is actually a pretty aggressive. It's a militaristic word. It's like when you would say you know come at me, bro, or something. I mean, you wouldn't say that because you know you've embraced the nonviolent ethic of Jesus, Josh. You you wouldn't say that. But you know, imagine somebody would say that, right? It's it's kind of aggressive. They're basically they're looking for a fight. And so they asked Jesus for a sign. I mean, tough, tough crowd. Basically, they asked Jesus to prove that he really is the one who he says he is, but only on the terms that they are willing to set for him. And Jesus not only refuses, but he gets on a boat and goes in the opposite direction from which he came. And he offers this cryptic parable to his disciples in the wake of that confrontation. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, for those of you who aren't into baking or brewing, it takes just a tiny amount of yeast to work its way through a whole batch. And Jesus' point is that in the same way, a wrong vision of the kingdom can subtly work its way in and through your heart to pull your desire in the complete opposite direction. It can pull you toward its vision for the kingdom and away from God's. And so Jesus offers these two examples. that are kind of the... The polarities of his day, they're, they're kind of the extremes in which you could go to in the first century. And it's an interesting mashup because these two things really have nothing in common. The Pharisees and Herod. And the Pharisees were this nationalist, religiously strict sect of Judaism who wanted the law, who wanted the temple at the center of Jewish life. They wanted all of the nations and their corrupting influence out of the way and, and away from their life. They wanted to be insular so they could do their thing. For them, Jesus was way too ordinary. He was way too casual, and they refused to believe unless he was willing to meet them on their terms. Herod, on the complete opposite end of the scale, was an irreligious, corrupt socialite. He was a sellout for Rome, who would do anything to consolidate his own power. He was about building the kingdom of self. And he thought Jesus was quaint and frankly not useful for that project. But the one thing that these two groups had in mind is this heart posture of unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was from God. They did not believe that his vision of the kingdom was true. Now neither of their visions could hit the mark, but both of them occupied the contested space that was pulling for the hearts of the people and Jesus can see in this moment that his disciples are not immune from that they have been with him all this time but being with him is not the same thing as trusting in him and he sees what is coming ahead he is concerned about the state of their hearts he does not want them to get hard I was out at the beach last week watching surfers at the Wedge. It's this uh, place in Newport Beach. It's a shore break wedged up next to this man-made jet. Waves there can get pretty insane. Um, and there is this moment of calm when you're, you're kind of out watching people who are brave enough to try it, where they have to make this decision. Either you can paddle away from the break or you can try to catch the wave. But if you decide too late, you're going to get pounded. You could potentially get thrown into the rocks. People have broken bones. People have become paralyzed. People have died out there. It's a gnarly, gnarly place. And all because of a moment of indecision. And Jesus is sensing, hey, this is what's going on, guys. This, this, the waves are crashing in. The confrontation between his vision of the kingdom and the, and the rivals are coming fast, And his, he's anxious that his disciples should know what is happening. So when he asks them, do you not see, do you not hear? He, he's not asking them like an exasperated teacher who, who you know, just thinks his students are dumb. He is asking because he is concerned that if they don't get this, life is at stake. He's caught them in this moment of doubt and he wants to make sure that their hearts don't harden over. And it's no different for us. There are all kinds of visions of the kingdom working their way into our hearts, clouding our vision, pulling us off course. And for some, Jesus seems way too ordinary, right? I mean, truth is too complicated to fit into any one story, no matter how wise, no matter how virtuous, no matter how good the person at the center of that story might be. And so we we like this idea of of Jesus and who he is, but asking the question, is he all we're ever going to need? I don't know about that for others jesus is just too much like christianity might be true but man it expects way too much and so we settle for a lesser god who doesn't ask us to sacrifice anything and every follower of jesus knows what it's like to feel the heart tugged between these two extremes and most of us can look back at times in our lives where we can remember that anything and everything seem more appealing to us than Jesus, and, right? We tell ourselves, "You know, I'll get to this whole you know religion, Jesus, church thing, whence I shore up you know some stuff in the real world." But after a while, all those things that we are pursuing in the, in the name of freedom, in the name of whatever craving that we're trying to desire, it ends up becoming the thing that, that hooks our hearts and starts to pull our appetite and so that we crave it instead. And maybe you're in one of those places right now. And if so, I want to encourage you, just remember the taste. Remember where you were when you first understood Jesus' words, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who comes to me will ever be thirsty again. You see, it's at this point that Jesus turns to his disciples, and maybe he's trying to force the issue. Maybe he's just sad, but he basically says to them, what about you? Which posture are you going to choose Are you going to be like those ones who were with me days on end because they tasted something and they knew that it was true and they knew that they were never going to hunger for anything else ever again? Or are you going to be like those who walk away because I don't guarantee that you're going to get everything you want? What if discipleship is more about hungering and thirsting after God than it is about knowing the right things, than it is about whether or not uh, we acknowledge the right things about Him? And Jesus' question of, to his disciples is, do you not yet understand? is a question about whether or not they are willing to align their hearts with his, to, to want what it is that God wants, to desire what God desires, to, to long for a God, to crave a world where his kingdom begins to shape what they love and trust that the rest is going to follow after it. Jesus wants you to know him, but he doesn't want to just drop a set of ideas in your mind. He wants you to trust which is why he is after nothing less than your deepest longing. He is out for your love. Not because he's some smooth preacher out to blow your mind who, who needs your, your adulation to validate himself, but because he is Lord. And he wants to invade the most guarded places of your heart. Do you understand A lot hanging on that question. I don't know where you were when you got a taste for the first time of something true. Uh, For me, I was a hurting seventeen-year-old. I was already pretty burnt out, cynical about religion. I don't think my heart was entirely hardened, but it was definitely in a shell. And I spent the better part of a season out, away from my parents, uh, more or less up in solitude in the wild of Montana. Uh, Emo wasn't a thing back then, but I probably would have been like, you know, (laughs) uh, would have probably described my emotional state. I was thinking I just, you know, needed to hit the reset button on my own life or something like that. Like I was just needed a little bit of space so I could figure it out. And then for one reason, which I still can't tell you why, I began to read the Bible. Uh, Maybe I was just super bored. Only I think what happened is less that I began to read the Bible is that I slowed down enough to let the Spirit read me through the Bible. And God began to show up in the pages, not as a concept, not as this category of thought that I could either take or I could leave, but as someone who was uniquely present in the person of Jesus. I can't do it justice, but somehow just experiencing that fierceness and the majesty of those surroundings looking up at the at the stars at the campfire and reading psalm 8 what is man that you are mindful of him but the thing that really got me was reading jesus in the sermon on the mount and the life that he called us to and thinking man if anybody ever dared to live that life if anybody ever dared to to live out that vision of what it could be that it really could be this one of abundance if anybody would dare to live that life, man, that would be something. And I knew I wanted to dare. And sometimes you just get a taste and this craving starts to develop. And don't get me wrong, there have been times when I have tried to fill that craving with other things. There are time when my faith has wavered. There's times when I have doubted God's goodness. There's times when I have doubted the call that he's placed on my life. There's times when I've been struck by all kinds of self-doubt, which brings me back to that spot where I'm a 17-year-old wanting to run away again. But I can never forget the taste of what it was like to know that God was present. The scene ends with the disciples not understanding But it ends with them, nevertheless, deciding to stick with Jesus. They kept at it. And like the crowds that followed, they hung on every word. They learned what it means to abide. And sometimes sticking with Jesus, doubt, seeking faith, is one of the most honest postures in all of scriptures. And there is a number of ways to describe that posture. Grit is one of them, the determination to you know, kind of stick it out no matter what happens. Faithfulness is another one, but maybe the best word is love. This is what it's like to love God, to hold on to him in the knowledge that in the broken bread, you're going to receive the only thing that will satisfy your longing because what you desire, what you crave is God himself. It's why we come to the table, to remember what it is that he has done for us, to remember in this broken bread and in this poured out cup, he has made himself present to us to satisfy every longing of our hearts. So friends, as you come to the table this morning, I want to invite you to just reflect on that question. Do you yet understand? Do you know what it is that I have done for you? Do you know what it is, what it means when we come to this table, when we take this bread, when we take this cup? Search your heart. Search your longings. What are those rival kingdoms pulling your heart in all kinds of different directions? Where is your heart getting hardened?